Um, this is also the title of our forthcoming uh, conference, I believe in two weeks in London. Yes. Which, if you're around, maybe it's very good idea to attend. Uh, David Wood is, um, uh, is uh, since 2008, is the chair of uh, London Futurists and has organized since then a lot of uh, events, talks, and discussions on the futurist topics. Um, and uh, yeah, so let's, let's go to the talk. And Why give up a lot of precious time on a Friday evening when I'm sure you had a lot of other things to do? Why give up time and talk about 2025? Well, I think the world could be profoundly, profoundly different by then in ways that are not just simple uh, extrapolations from the present. And that's a deep belief I've got. And I don't think enough people take it seriously. And I'm here to make the case that the world could indeed be profoundly different in just 11 short years, based on accelerating technology changes, which I'll cover in the kind of first chunk of my talk, also because of impending crisis, which I'll cover in the second chunk of my talk. And I don't think people take uh, both of them, either of these trends sufficiently seriously. In fact, politicians aren't making good plans for these radical changes, you know, they are looking ahead, but it tends to be a little bit of change from the present day. Business leaders are, are likewise, in fact, all leaders of all sorts aren't particularly good at thinking about these uh, profound changes. Uh, there is an excuse for them, which is it's not at all clear to know what we should be credibly expecting for these timescales. There's lots of scenarios that people paint, and it's not at all clear which of them are wishful thinking, which of them are just Hollywood uh, pictures, which of them, on the contrary, are more substantial. And even out of the ones which are credible, it's not at all clear what's desirable. People can argue a great deal. Should we be uh, focusing on a future which has more things like BBC Micro, as uh, you were suggesting, or should we be welcoming the radical transformations that are lie ahead? And even if we did agree as to what's desirable, few people can agree how to accelerate these desirable outcomes. So it's not surprising that politicians look at this and say, oh, you futurists can't make up your mind, I only concentrate if you don't mind on winning the next election, rather than thinking about these longer term time skills. But we should think about them, and London Futurist is dedicated to looking at these three questions. It's separating science fiction from science fact, trying to argue in cases as careful as we can as to which of these scenarios are desirable, and then the activist question, what should we do differently? Now, it's a big, big topic. I'll give you my answer in a nutshell, which is that there are four kind of uh, overlapping trajectories between now and this time period. First of all, there's the improvements in technology, which can be very significant. Equally, as I said, and this is the second chunk of the talk, I'll look at the general uh, conditions for crisis to happen of one sort or another. And which of these two is going to win will depend on how good we get at collaborating. How good we get at pooling our analytical ideas, how good we get at coming up with a shared understanding that can guide people to work together for a common purpose rather than uh, to be split up in arguing. And finally, I'm going to make the case that a lot of it's going to come about in terms of whether we can persuade people to think differently. Because how people act, the kind of changes that people would like to make, depend critically on what they think is the kind of a desirable outcome. And I'm going to make the case that we should be shifting from a kind of humanity 1.0 mindset to a more of a humanity 2.0, humanity plus mindset as covered in the humanity plus declarations. 
And I think this should be something not just for a small group of people, maybe 15 people in Oxford, it's something that everybody in Oxford should gradually be coming to appreciate and champion. And I'll talk about the conditions that may make it more likely that people will take this point of view. So that's the talk in a nutshell. And I'm now going to go through these four trajectories one by one, starting with the changes in technology that we might expect. So let's go back 11 years instead to 1990. Actually, how many years is that back? 21. I got, I got that bit wrong already. Right. Interesting. Anyway. So this is what uh, the American economist uh, writer captured as the tools he was using in 1993. And he said, well, instead of these tools in 1993, last year, this is what he uses instead. And, to an and this is why they shared on the internet last year. And to an extent, this is an exaggeration because of course this device can do things that you can't do with this. But arguably for the 20% of the things that are most important for most of the time, you can do it in there. And that is a remarkable transformation, even though it took 20 years rather than 11 that I had in mind when I put the slide together. Anyway, uh, that is a trend what we've seen already. What's coming next? Let's look at another example that I find fascinating as well. This is looking at uh, what happened with another major company, Amazon, and Amazon's trajectory of sales of physical books, which took a long time from 1996 to ramp up to significant profits and beyond. And what this graph shows is from Amazon's uh, annual results from uh, sometime, I think, towards the end of 2012, when they announced that this happened, that e-books sales have leapfrogged over physical book sales in less than three years from e-books starting. And what Jeff Bezos, the CEO and founder of Amazon, said about this is that they didn't expect it would happen. They thought eventually it would take place. They didn't at all imagine it would be so quick a transformation that took place. And I think uh, now if you look at the London Tube or the Oxford Tube, I don't know, I don't travel the Oxford Tube much, but uh, I imagine quite a few people are spending time reading these books rather than the physical books. So why has that happened? And I think it, this summarizes in a nutshell a lot of the technological change that we're seeing. It's not just for one reason. These Kindles and e-books haven't become so wildly successful just because one, it's because of a whole combination of technologies that have matured and which this company, Amazon, will then be able to integrate together in this one product. So the technologies behind this include things like cheap digital storage, that I can have so many books on my Kindle all stored away, low energy screens, uh, which is able to be a very nice, pleasant reading environment with, uh, without using too much energy. Not just the storage, but also the mechanism that the books get onto the device in this uh, almost transparent way now that we can more or less take for granted. You know, you visit a website, uh, possibly on your PC or some other device, you purchase the book, and then almost magically the device comes on here onto the device. There's a lot to be done as well from the whole backlog of books, and there's a lot to be done in software. And all of these things were able to be integrated together to produce this, uh, in many ways, a marvel of engineering. It wasn't just technology. Amazon did some other clever things to make it successful. They had a very nice business model. They didn't try to make too much money selling these devices. They sell them uh, possibly even at a loss because they make their money by selling the books. So that was another reason that propelled these devices forward. But I think, on the whole, the reasons which this device uh, became successful comes down to improvements in computing power, both in the performance of the computing, that more things could be stored and more things could be easily communicated, 
And on their clickability of computing, the more fields such as the storage of books and in other areas, uh, lots of other things have been turned into dig digital versions, and that has allowed these other fields to be swept up and become part of this ongoing transformation. So let me look in a minute about where this trend is going, the increase in performance in computing. This is figures which some of you may have seen. It's from a Stanford consulting professor, Jonathan Cooney, published about two years ago, looking at uh, the growth in energy efficiency in computing. <coughs> and uh, it's too small for you to see easily, but what it looks at here is how much computation can be got out of the best computer of the time, whether it's ENIAC in the middle 1940s, something like the Altair, the first uh, PC in the 1980, and so on. If you look at how much computation you can get out for a given unit of energy, a kilowatt hour, you get in the beginning somewhere between 100 and 1,000 computations. But over the 60-year period, it goes up reasonably straight, not completely straight, there are deviations here and there, but on the whole, it's gone up from a thousand computations up to a quadrillion uh, computations for that same amount of energy in a relatively straight line. And if you do the maths, that's 40 doublings over 60 years, so roughly one doubling every 18 months, which is also the common version of what's called Moore's Law. So this is other evidence that other people have found that this increase in the power of computing has been going on for a long time. Moore's Law, of course, was named after this guy. Uh, went on to found Intel, Gordon Moore. Even before he was working at Intel, he noted, and he published in 1965 this picture, when he said, oh, actually, we're getting better at putting a, a transistors and other integrate other uh, componentry onto a chip. He drew this line. Again, it's a world curve, one component in 1959, uh, eight components in 1962, and so on. And he dared to suggest that this trend might continue for some time into the future. And in this original publication, he suggested that roughly it could continue for 10 more years. Gottmore is still very much alive. Uh, he's 85 years old. And uh, mostly when you ask him, he says, yeah, maybe another 10 years it will survive. Uh, if we did continue this law in this time period between 2014 to 2025, uh, how far would we get in terms of improving the performance of today's computers? But an 18 month in, you get double the performance. Another 18 months will take us to what, 2017? It means that fourfold is improved. How many times do you fit 18 months into this time period? Sevenfold and uh, ten and a half years. It means that the devices for the same price, for the for the, the raw computational part of them, for the same price could be working 128 times faster for the same power input. You don't need to spend it all like that, of course. You can break it up. You can say, well, I'm going to have devices which are five times faster, and I'll keep some of the other stuff to make them cheaper, and I'll keep some of the other stuff to make them smaller. And the advantage of having them smaller is they use less battery power. So that's the potential, a radical change. And we've seen a lot of change in the last 20 years or so in terms of computational power. If this uh, trend continues, uh, the devices will, as I said, potentially be much smaller and more powerful. Now, is this in fact the case? Uh, uh, lots of people look uh, uh, on an ongoing basis at how likely it is 
for these uh, this trend to continue. This is somebody I know in the industry, Henry Samuli, who's the CTO of a major semiconductor company. He was quoted at a big conference <clears throat> last year, just over a year ago, saying, yeah, Moore's Law is coming to an end, uh, possibly sometime in the next decade, in the 2020s. We still have another 15 years or so to enjoy. So he should know. This person should know even more. This is the vice president of the group inside Intel that's responsible for their ongoing roadmap of technology improvements, Mike Mabry. Uh, and he commented at much the same period of time, much the same panel. He said, look, uh, it's true, if we just use one technology to improve the computational powers, we would run into limits. In reality, inside Intel, they've been reusing, they've been coming across new technological innovations, major uh, jumps in the technology every five or seven years for the last 40 years. And he sees no end in sight for being able to do that. And the group he runs is responsible for all kinds of innovative uh, potential uh, technologies that could be applied to improving the computational power. And he identifies 18 different technologies that they're tracking inside that group. And some of them are to do with 3D manufacturing of chips and other, other all kinds of weird bits of physics that I've forgotten about. And some of you can probably tell me what, what it means. Uh, hesitate to name any of them because I'll probably get it wrong. So that's the trend. But I don't want just to talk about Moore's Law. It's the most famous of the trends. Let me talk about this one as well. This is named after this person here. Any idea who that is and what he's doing with this weird boot-shaped device in the streets of New York in 1973? This is something called Marty Cooper. And uh, he was uh, in the team in Motorola who conceived that actually they should take car phone radios out of the car and make them work on the street. And uh, this is the first time he managed to make a call. Uh, he called up one of his competitors at Bell Labs and said, guess what I'm calling you on? And he then took the device into a press conference, showed it off to journalists, said, you can try. And the journalist said, look, well, can I phone my mother? She's in Australia. And he said, yes. So she, she dialed up, she took the phone, dialed it up, and was really struck that this device, which had no wires, these were on the days when there weren't even a, a, a wireless, cordless phones in, 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 the, in the house. So it took Motorola another 10 years to bring this phone to market, which is an interesting story in its own right. But there he is, a leading uh, wireless engineer. And he has a law named after him. He has observed not to do with the computational power, but rather the transmission of uh, information over the wireless. Uh, how much uh, conversations, as he's called it, is a more technical term for uh, the definition of that, can be transmitted over, over the wireless. And you know there are things called 3G and 4G. And 3G is this uh, wideband CDMA and 4G is this LTE thing. And before that was 2.5G GPRS, before that was 2G. And he looked back all the way to 1895. They weren't doing mobile phones in 1895, but Marconi was in the Bristol Channel doing his first experiments with wireless. And he plotted all the kind of how much, how good they were at using the wireless uh, spectrum at that time. And he noted roughly every 30 months we have doubled that as well. Interesting. That's not exactly a straight line. There's a bit of a kink in it here, which is interesting too. None of these things are straight laws of physics, of course. They're all to do with engineering effort. What makes these trends go? What is the drivers for this exponential improvement? So, of course, other changes don't keep on going. You know, uh, in the 1920s, people were building higher and higher skyscrapers. They didn't keep on getting higher and higher. 
We stopped for a long time. The Empire State Building was the tallest building for what? Not to go 40 years. And jet airliners don't improve their speeds exponentially either. So what are the reasons for this exponential improvement? And I'm going into this so that we can understand why this technological trends are likely to continue and be even more uh, widely impactful. There's three reasons. First of all, there's the actual physical possibility. You know? These things are physically possible. As Richard Feynman famously said, 1959, there's plenty of room at the bottom. You know, we, the, if you look and do the theoretical calculations, eventually they come down to almost a single atom being a transistor uh, in its own right. Uh, not much more than that. And so there's still lots of physical possibility to be explored, provided, secondly, we get sufficiently clever engineers to actually figure out how to transform that physical possibility into actual product. Uh, this has been the major story behind Moore's Law and equally Cooper's Law, uh, and other similar enhancements, which is that there have been major companies such as Intel, ARM, Qualcomm, NVIDIA, Broadcom and so on, they've all been working on improving the computing chips, a whole bunch of other companies and a lot of government money, in fact, around the world, has gone into improving the wireless networks. They're doing a lot of research as we speak into what's called 5G, that they hope to roll out in time for the Tokyo Olympics in 2020. Uh, so that has taken a lot of money. Uh, to make it happen. And why have we done it? First of all, because it's physically possible, but secondly, because there are customers, there are end users, who actually are willing to pay money for incremental benefit for what's, what's available. It's interesting also that the public money helps in here, but the fact that there's competition between these companies <coughs> has also helped to keep this thing running well. Public-private partnership. So we find end users who wanted better chips, why? Because they could do more sophisticated software on their devices, so that they could uh, watch better video on their devices, so they could watch HD video on their devices and so forth. And these users have been willing to pay for new features. And this cycle, this going through ongoing loops, has been what's propelled the ongoing improvements. In a way, the other changes stopped happening because there were no more physical, it wasn't easy to physically to make it happen, or there wasn't sufficient benefit to make it to, to, to end users in these improvements. So if I step back from that, I see this picture. I see a picture of positive feedback cycles. And understanding what's happening in technology in the future, we have to understand a lot about these positive feedback cycles. Something which allows an ongoing cycle of improvement. And they affect computers themselves. Where do computers come from? Well, of course, they are designed and manufactured. And the first computers were designed in paper and pencil. And were assembled by hand people painstakingly doing a lot of uh, engineering. But then guess what? Computers can be used to improve so-called computer-aided design and computer-aided manufacturing. So the second generation of computers is designed using the first generation and so on it goes. And so nowadays the, the design of new computers uses huge and huge amounts of design and manufacturing uh, from their uh, computers themselves. So there are still humans involved in this process, otherwise we'd have reached the singularity and it would improve all by itself, but the humans are still here. Just same with software. Some of you here write software, because human beings are involved, but you use software to help you write software. You use things called uh, compilers and debuggers, at least you did in my days, I don't know what you use nowadays, things like static code analyzers and profilers. And each generation of software allows the next generation of software to be written uh, more effectively. So one human can write larger and more complicated bits of software. So this cycle goes on. Technology itself, comes 
custom technology also comes from people who are educated about the technology. And the more technology improves, guess what? We can improve how education takes place. Because there's fine technology in this room, this high roof, high roof ceiling and uh, lovely candles, but more recently there's things like video projectors. And more recently again there's things called MOOCs, massive online open courses. And uh, we've all got incredible ways to help us be educated. Not only is technology improving education, which improves technology, we've got more and more people in the world being hooked into this. People in vast uh, uh, countries around the world. People in China, in India, in uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Africa, and so forth. And not only are there more people, guess what? Technology also helps these people to network together more effectively. So somebody's bright idea published in Oxford can be commented straight away by somebody in Calcutta or somebody in uh, San Diego. And uh, this uh, technology is driving this improvement. So this is my reason for saying that technology is likely to continue to improve even faster and faster. Because not only is there a single positive feedback cycle here, there are more and more people being brought into it. Let's look at one more example. Uh, this is Professor George Church of Harvard. I'm sharing a couple of his slides here. And I'm going back to the fact that actually some of these curves sometimes uh, go even faster than you expect. So what he's tracking here is a very practical thing which is to do with uh, sequencing genomes, supplying some of the computer technology to read the DNA uh, which people have. And he noticed, of course, it's improving at a certain rate. It's improving uh, for how many base pairs could you sequence per dollar? Way back in this early time, it took you more than a dollar, not more than a dollar to sequence a base pair. And gradually it was improving, improving. And he said it actually is improving at about the same rate as Moore's Law. And he said, if we extrapolated this, how long would it get, take us to reach a $1,000 sequencing of an entire genome? If you extrapolate that on, and on and on, it takes all the way to 2040. Of course, things have changed since then. And if we fill in the rest of this graph, uh, there was a major change in the rate of change there, uh, as a whole bunch of new tools were developed, and new techniques to be applied. And the rate of change since that time has pushed up this to sort of act the improvements. Uh, this uh, $1,000 price for sequencing a genome is met by 2012, and it's continuing to grow. So I make this point to emphasize that these things aren't, of course, absolute straight lines. They're not uh, analogous with things like Maxwell's equations or uh, Newton's laws of motion. They depend very much on social uh, considerations. They depend on how many people are working on them, and they also depend on whether you can get more people involved and whether you can bring new tools to, to bear. So a very interesting kick in that curve. This curve is sometimes called, turned upside down, is Rob Carlson, who's a synthetic uh, biologist, uh, tracks it. And so this is upside down here saying, uh, how, how much does it cost to sequence a single base pair? And it used to cost the way up here more than $10 and it came down slowly and then it came down quickly. Draw this curve to emphasize one more point. This isn't just an improvement in how good we are at reading uh, DNA, it's how good we are at writing DNA. This is the second curve. And it's lagging somewhere behind, but increasingly we are able to create DNA and do it a bit more cheaply along the way too. And we can't be sure how that curve is going to continue. 
Actually, last night I looked up and there's an update in this, and it hasn't actually got much faster. And even this one slowed <coughs> down a bit, but they seem to be still stepping in that in that, in that same direction. So what I'm saying here is that technology acceleration is driven by technology convergence. I'm saying that make improvements in one area of technology, nanotechnology, say, which is uh, being able to manipulate matter at the atomic level, because at the same time people are making improvements in related areas, and then they're able to bring insights and the tools and the techniques from these different areas and apply them to each other. So it's not just that there are more people involved, that there's more learning which people can bring into play. So ubiquitous computing and nanotechnology, we can use that to study the brain more deeply, we can get better understanding what's happening inside the human brain, as we understand the human brain better, we can then design better artificial intelligence systems. We can make progress with that. We can apply these learnings in turn to be better at genetic engineering. Related is that is techniques to improve our intelligence, synthetic biology, and so on it goes. Robotics, regenerative medicine, geoengineering, an example of fields, each of which I expect to be significant improvements in the next uh, decade and improvements which will be able to feed off each other. can't predict with any confidence exactly how this is going to go because there are lots of bots along the way, but I can predict that provided the general conditions continue in place, in other words, provided there's none of the crisis that I'm going to talk about shortly, then I expect that each of them will make very significant changes. If we look further afield, uh, people sometimes draw a kind of a black hole, a kind of singularity at the, at the, at the center of this, because we can't quite predict how it's all going to work. change. The rate of change will be such that we, we don't know what the outcome is. But I think at least for the next 10, 10 years or so to 2025, there's lots of ground for change and improvements. So just to finish off then, and we'll stop for a, a brief discussion, to finish off the summary of the technological possibilities, I think that these trends provide the ability, in short, to be generating much more energy and generating many more materials, significant improvements in our health and vitality, allowing us to have, a, uh, on the whole, a much better quality of life, indeed, much better quality of experiences. I don't believe we'll be anything like at the end of the road by 2025, but I believe that if we can keep these improvements in place, uh, the world will be very significantly better uh, between now and then. But, of course, you're expecting this, but there's lots of uncertainties between now and then. There's uncertainties as regards the timing, some of these curves uh, start and stop. There's uncertainties to the extent, which means how widely will these uh, changes uh, take place, and to how much uh, will the changes be shared out amongst a wider group of people. Uh, and what are the unforeseen consequences of many of these enhancements in technologies. Uh, unforeseen consequences, talking about Murphy's Law rather than Moore's Law. Moore's Law suggesting, you know, when things are progressing in a nice, generally uh, upward curve, uh, Murphy's Law saying unexpected things go wrong. There can be many roadblocks along the way, including crises. But this is the general picture I will paint as to what can happen between the world in 2025. If you want to look at some examples, we can talk in details about all of these. We don't have time to talk about all of these now, so I want to get on to sort of the downsides of the future. But I will pause for a bit and give you a chance to comment 
And I will say, of course, uh, that uh, many of these topics will be looked at in more detail in the conference that you heard about at the very beginning of the uh, evening, which is going to take place in London in two weekends' time, where we've got speakers going into particular aspects of these. So we're talking about whether doctors will end up unemployed because of the enhancements in things like big data processing. We have uh, somebody from this university, Sonia Contera, talking about nanotechnology in 2025. And we have Anders himself, who might be talking about rational resource management. Can we be better at uh, advising politicians on advice, whether it's by using IBM's Watson or whether it's by using other modern technology? So, let's pause for a bit, because I've said rather a lot in these uh, uh, 25 minutes or so. Uh, do you share this vision that uh, these technologies uh, could become very significant, even more significant, in changing life between now uh, and 2025. Are the things that I missed out that you would pick instead? You would say, actually, this other one should be referenced and given priority. And are there some here that you think are just uh, impossible? For example, quantum computing is probably the outlier. It's the most controversial one on here. I do believe in uh, that quantum computing is a real thing. I have enough confidence in the physics behind it. It's just a matter of whether the engineering can progress as quickly as uh, people like uh, Jody Rose, the CTO of the leading quantum computing company, D-Wave, uh, predicts. Yes. How about full immersion virtual realities? Ray Kurzweil suggests that by 2023 it might be possible. Virtual realities? Like full immersion virtual realities. Yes. So I think, uh, this, I've got this on here twice. First of all, Many of us will be wearing not just smartphones that we look at, but many of us will be wearing some kind of glass from time to time, which gives us more insights. So I'm in Mobile World Congress, where I spent some time with last week, everybody was showing off the latest watches, which give you information. <laughs> it's still a bit inconvenient to do this. It's much more, oh, you got one there, right. <laughs> which one is that? This is the very first one. Uh, very this awesome. is just the strap for the iPod yeah. through Kickstarter. Okay. So many of these things are still in that very early phase now. When things like that Motorola mobile phone, which I showed you, spent 10 years under development, and Motorola spent another 10 years before they were confident they really had made back enough money to justify all the investment they put into it. And then, of course, mobile phones have taken over the world, uh, smartphones have taken over the world. So I think it'll be the same with Google Glass, and there'll be lots of means where we put these things on, and then we can actually interact with colleagues or friends who are in the other parts of the world. And so we, we will be able to send our avatar representing us into virtual meetings. So rather than just having a Skype call, which you see the picture of the other person, you can put these things on, you'll be able to interact there. Even more scary in some ways is when you in, encounter virtual companions in there, who aren't actually real companions. They are things like Samantha in the film Hair. Samantha, I don't know if you've seen Hair, Hair the movie. Samantha is an operating system. She gave, it, she gave herself the name Samantha. Uh, don't take all of it too seriously because uh, it is Hollywood after all. But uh, people do already uh, seem to be quite happy to spend quite a lot of time interacting with these virtual companions. And we do have a speaker, by the way, at the 2025 conference who's going to be talking on the interesting subject of uh, love and sex with robots, which he doesn't think will be so widespread in 25 or it won't be so satisfying, but he thinks about 2040. It will be uh, a kind of a first level experience. Anyway, that's uh, somebody who's been looking at robots for a long time. That's David Levy, a former international chess player. 
Uh, yes, uh, your Gad, I'm not so convinced by the pace of progress. Yeah. It seems to me it's been driven much more by what can be done than the actual utility. Yeah. I, I noticed, for instance, I'm wearing a watch identical to that 20 year yes. ago one, and about half the people in this room yeah, are. I'm, I'm even though I'm capable of looking at the time on my mobile phone, but I, it trumped everything right. when you said the fear about virtual companions. Do you know how far back that goes? When women started reading books yeah. in the 19th century, yeah. they read all these romance books instead of improving books like the Bible. Um, there were real predictions. Yes, they will find what we would call their virtual companionship in this books will degrade them. I mean, these things, almost everything you've said is not very new at all. Yeah. Well, what is new is the technology is on the point of delivering more and more of this to us. Uh, it's been on the point of delivering for many decades. So I think uh, a lot of it has changed. Uh, I think in driverless cars, people talked about for a long, long time. Uh, many people said you never <laughs> have to do such a thing. It's too hard for the do all the computational calculations. And now, increasingly, the driverless cars will be a lot safer than real cars. Again, it's a question of utility. Um, I travelled on a driverless car, um, oh, many, many times during the last year, and people have for over 100 years, because yeah. when you get in, say, a train or a tram, yes. or for that matter, a taxi, you can go somewhere without having to drive yourself. Mm -hmm. I, I am making a serious point here. A driverless car, yeah, it's a cool toy, but it's not as important. No, I think it's having a I think driverless cars are incredibly important. I, I think it does have some important aspect, but that's kind of besides the point I'm interested in making. Uh, I think Stuart Armstrong gave a talk here last year about his research about predictions about artificial intelligence. And the main point was they're essentially crap. Uh, and he's done a very nice job of collecting predictions and seeing. Uh, how are we statistically distributed? The interesting part of his uh, paper was he also did look at the theoretical argument why should we expect them to be bad and when should they expect predictions about the future to work out? So it seems like in domains where you can gather expertise, where you can actually check that predictions are we coming through or if we're going forth, why are they uh, coming forth? Then you can actually say quite a lot more of it. So I think uh, a lot of these possibilities, they're probably in the category Stuart would say, yeah, we can't actually say anything reliable about it. But Moore's law is actually an area where his model would predict that, yeah, we can actually make some decent predictions about it. We can't predict what we're going to use it for, but uh, it looks, uh, given, again, past experience, but very unlikely to have changed. Moore's law is predictable, but it has made, therefore, no, no kind of fundamental changes. There was something, uh, you know, in the 1980s teaching in the computer centre, I had students producing something very like mini Wikipedias, not writing any clever software for it, because on says there was a utility for doing that. What Jimmy Wells done is a wonderful thing, getting more contributors, you know, a huge encyclopedia. It's great, but it's not really novel, and I have uh, been... Oh, it's it's not a matter of the idea, it's a matter of has it been uh, implemented, and it's been implemented much, much more widely through the yeah. Jimmy Wells' work in Wikipedia than it was done previously, so that increasingly that's uh, people's first port of call to find answers to questions. Yeah, yeah. So, so one point that I want to make, I mean, you guys are talking about um, Moore's Law and also in the domain of artificial intelligence. I find those domains, um, which was my original domain of study, um, um, the harmless domain. Uh, the harmless domain. Yes. <laughs> so um, progress in Moore's Law or progress in artificial intelligence and all of these things, politicians don't give a shit about and not, nor do normal people because it doesn't 
necessarily, they don't see a harm from that, tangible harm. Whereas stem cell therapies, synthetic organs, and none of them, none of, it, it's a methodology, it's, it's a method that we use in molecular biology, stem cell therapy. I don't see the word gene therapy anywhere there. So there are techniques that could be used that we have researched for a while, but we have brushed it under um, yeah. you know, the cupboard or, or, or put it in, in a locked door because society thinks, uh, especially Europe, uh, things that could be harmful, but it could be fantastically beneficial. Yeah. I mean, we haven't, we started researching it, then stopped it, and then kind of sort of <clears throat> are doing it a little bit at a time, but we could be, it would be far more advanced. We could have a Moore's Law of gene therapy. We could be much further along. Uh, I mean, I spent half the day today with the British Society on gene therapy and, and gene and cell therapy, teaching um, 16 to uh, 19 year olds who are going into university about stem cell therapy and gene therapy, and they're not. They don't learn anything about gene therapy. Um, and when asked about GMO and gene therapy, they equate those two to be ethically problematic. These are young students. By this time, by this time, in 2014, if you look at past predictions in, in the gene therapy area, that's just one method in molecular biology. We should be far along. So that's why I come back to this point here, is changing the public mindset as regards to the desirability of various things yeah. will have a big impact on whether the technology actually lives up to its potential. <coughs> I think you have a very interesting point to say some of these things are harmless and therefore they get accepted. So the improvements in smartphones uh, been, been, been astonishing in the last uh, 10, 20 years, but it's, uh, it hasn't come so close to challenging people's thinking. Let me round off a couple of points. I've, the reason I think driverless cars will be very fundamental is that driverless cars will be much safer than human-driven cars, and secondly, they'll allow cars to be much smaller, because they won't need to be so thick to, to, to cope with collisions, and therefore they'll be much more ecologically friendly as well. So that's why they're famous. I have a whole bunch of fans. So. Where should we go? Huh. Yeah, question? Yeah, um, so I've noticed a lot of these are hardware, they're um, artificial intelligence yeah. or algorithms. Um, when you look at a lot of the big companies that are yeah. coming out of technology, a lot of them are Silicon Valley, which is like more esoteric web stuff. Like yeah. Facebook would have been difficult to predict. Mm -hmm. um, even Google and a lot of these other like social startups are difficult, like Kickstarter. Do you know about like, you know, what the predictions are like? For soft web technologies like that, soft web technologies similar to Kickstarter, Wikipedia, Facebook, yeah. social networking. Like, there's a lot that will probably be discovered in the next, you know, by 2025. Yeah. And this chart does not really focus on them. It focuses more on the hardware and the physical things. What are you talking? Right. It's true. So yeah. I, I haven't, I haven't picked up Facebook or Twitter on this. But I think they belong in the category Stuart uh, theory would actually uh, rather accurately. We cannot say anything smart about them, just that, yeah, we're going to be a few Facebooks uh, more. Something yeah. as profoundly different as Facebook uh, was to the pre Facebook world. It's just that it's impossible to predict. Uh, I think if you're interested on that, <coughs> sorry, if you're interested on that, The New Digital Age by um, Jared Cohen and um, yeah. Eric Schmidt, fantastic. And it talks about how how um, things like smartphones in developing countries um, will, will give room for whistleblowers and anonymous journalism. Uh, and, and that really focuses on the kind of software trends. Well, I think one place where the software will be more significant is in the synthetic biology and in the 
somewhere I don't quite I haven't called out this on right here, but synthetic biology and on gene, in gene therapy where people are able to use this software mechanisms but programming in uh, in uh, carbon as it were rather than programming in silicon. What about the rational resource management? Um, I mean I, I, I would think that software would play a big role there as well. Absolutely. Kind of when, it, when I say software I'm not talking about all software, I'm talking about <coughs> specifically web applications. Which are a bit different than like AI. But that said, you can imagine like prediction markets going into yeah. rational resources. So one reason I haven't spoken yeah. so much about web technology is that there are so many other people talking about the future of web technology. Uh, so I focused on I thought more on the kind of the, the, the larger larger changes which people spend less time on. Question? Um, what about cyborgs? Uh, UK has its first uh, Neil Harbinson, I think. His name is uh, he's the first cy uh, cyborg citizen, I believe. And he can listen to color, or I think uh, there's an, another girl called Moon Rebus who can actually um, sense uh, earthquakes anywhere on Earth. Right. So things like these are, I think they are actually going to be a lot more like human advancement. Right. So when we can uh, get new sensors, or also when we can uh, right. replace some of our existing skeleton with better skeletons, or. Right. So they can. <coughs> Uh, bones and enhancing our yes. So my mother's just had a hip operation come through well, but uh, maybe more of us will have hip operations younger in our lives because they're just so good, you know? <laughs> you might also Google for body hackers. Yeah. That's what they're calling the movement now in, in America. There's like a hype of lots of young people getting like RFC stuff and magnets into their fingers. Oh, yeah. And putting online what they yeah. can do with it. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yes. Uh, the economist Robin Hansen sketched out a scenario in which um, it's possible to uh, copy very large numbers of accumulated yeah. people. Um, and uh, it was pointed out that when you have very large numbers of skilled workers, arbitrarily large numbers yeah. of essential, uh, that the economy would grow very fast. So you'd have a kind of singularity thing. Yeah. But um, it would put a lot of people out of work. Yes. And all of the new wealth created would go yes. to. So this is a bridge into the second part of the talk when we look at some of the downsides. Technological unemployment is definitely one of these things we have to consider hard. But getting green innovation to work a little bit for 2025, I think. But the general principle that as we use more software to do tasks which formerly humans did, but if we have these driverless cars, there are lots of drivers, you know, there's I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people whose job is uh, driving and they'll all be out of out of work. Uh, well, mainly out of work. There might be a few <coughs> to do some special kind of driving, but uh, mainly they'll be unemployed. And as the algorithms get adopted more widely, translations, you know, there are lots of people in the EU who do simultaneous translations in due course. I don't think we're that far away from this. I think the translations have got a lot better uh, in, the, in the last uh, 10 years. As people have applied uh, all kinds of new methods to doing uh, translations, so they'll be out of work. Uh, automated workers here you know, will displace potentially uh, nurses, soldiers, lots of other tasks too. Did you have a question as well? Yeah, so um, this is sort of related to what Ali said. I'm, I'm, uh, I believe that a lot of these technologies may exist by 2025, but I'm more skeptical, more skeptical that they will be widespread because, yeah. um, for example, the first time somebody's in a driverless car and they, and they get an accident and die, I can imagine the government outlawing them, or well, that's an equipment failure. When when a tires when a tire busts and causes an accident, do we say right we're not going to have these tires anymore? We say we should do it better. 
I think there are many more accidents happen due to human drivers. Well, I agree too. Hmm? Well, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, we know the safety record of GMO crops. Yeah. It doesn't matter in Europe. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Evidence doesn't matter. Well, so that comes down to why doesn't it matter? So why are so people so against GMO despite the... In Europe. And, par and partly it's because of a fear of some particular companies who seem to have been a little bit too ruthless, a bit too many people can point out things that Monsanto have done that they don't like. Uh, but, uh, and generally, it's a, it's a zeitgeist. It's a, prevailing, it's a prevailing set of ideas. And so at the end, Mike, you jump ahead and the final slide is, it all comes down to changing people's thinking rather than just changing their technology. And one reason we're not going to make as much, we might not make as much progress in this, is because the whole mindset will be against it and say, well, actually, no, let's go back to a simpler, simpler time from before, thank you, rather than aspiring to what we can do with this. Now, I mean, this isn't just a fun and games, it's not just a nicer video, it's a very significant if we can indeed improve our ability to be creative, if indeed we can live much longer due to rejuvenation biotechnology, become healthier, that's a tremendous upside. So, but it's not going to happen unless the zeitgeist or the thinking of the people as a whole becomes more positive to it. At least it may not happen in Europe and in Britain. It probably will happen in Korea and China and places like that. So, so to, with Aussie's question and other people's questions and with your IBM Watson's there, could we imagine a web app which would put IBM Watson in everybody's pocket right. and anytime they have a question, it would think for them rationally and give them the answer? IBM CEO, uh, Julia Romati, was speaking at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona last week and she announced the competition. She said, right, uh, come up with ideas, all you mobile developers, what would you like to do? To, on your mobile device to take access to APIs to, into Watson. You know? Watson initially was a big box, <coughs> a huge number of boxes that lived in the next room to where the, the, the quiz program Jeffrey was being run. But now it's accessible by APIs in the cloud. And she said, look, please come up with ideas and uh, we'll have a short list of 25. And each of the shortlist of 25 will get the experimental access to Watson for a while, and then the top three will get marketing support to take their idea out. <coughs> so that competition's open, you know? If you come up with some uh, suggestions, submit it into that uh, Watson developer contest, uh, I think that's a great idea. I want to move on and talk about the, kind of, uh, the other major trend, which I think needs to be taken into account. I want to talk about the potential of things going very badly wrong in the next day. Uh, 10 years or so. And uh, since it's a kind of, uh, uh, interesting to look at the outbreak of the First World War, there's been a lot on the TV recently, because uh, it's 100 years, but to look back to what various people said just before the First World War started. So this person here said war between the great powers has become an economic impossibility because of the delicate interdependence of international finance. This person actually got a Nobel Prize uh, a few years later. This was, his name's going to come up in a minute. This person here uh, went to investigate uh, conflicts that was taking place in the Balkans. Uh, the Balkans, you know, this uh, troubled place where Yugoslavia has come and gone. And he said, right, the epoch of conquest is over. It is as certain as anything in politics that the frontiers of our national states are finally drawn. My own belief is that there will be no more war amongst the six powers. So the first one was uh, by Norman Angel. Uh, 
British journalist who went on to win the Nobel Prize for his work on why there couldn't or shouldn't be wars. Uh, this was uh, from a British member of the International Commission reporting on the Balkan Wars in spring 1914. A lot of confidence there that we were gone beyond the uh, things of that kind of conflict. The underlying causes of crisis, in my view, are connections that nobody fully understood. When we go back to the outbreak of the First World War, there were lots of connections that people had only a dim understanding of and a dim appreciation of there. Innovations that nobody understands. Not just whether there are one risk, but whether there are several different risks coming together. So I talked very optimistically in the first half of this talk about the convergence of technology opens many new possibilities. But what I'm going to argue in the next 15 minutes or so is the convergence of risks uh, makes, uh, in some ways, the next uh, decade possibly one of the most scary that we've ever lived through. Second underlying cause of crisis is unfounded overconfidence. And there's a lot of confidence, and I often uh, come across the confidence as well, because of the confidence in the potential for technology. But equally, uh, there's no, nothing to guarantee that that potential will work out in a positive way. And it gets worse when you've got systems that are pumped up and take on a life of their own via the same kind of positive feedback cycles that I was talking about. And these positive feedback cycles can be the vehicle for a lot of growth, but they can also be a vehicle for terrible destabilization. You know, the kind of positive feedback cycles we often experience in a conference such as this. It's when you get the microphones uh, somehow uh, reinforcing each other and you get this terrible din. And the same kind of thing can happen, but in a more complex way in starting some of these crises. So here's an example of somebody who was overconfident. Uh, it is hard for us, without being flippant, to see a scenario within any realm of reason that would see us even losing one dollar in any of these credit default swap <laughs> transactions. This was said by the chief financial officer of, things, of AIG, a large insurance company, on a Wall Street investor call of August 2007, Joe Casano. Did they lose at one dollar? Probably a bit more than one dollar. I think he's up in a criminal court case quite soon. He wasn't a fool, you know? And there were many other people like him who were full of confidence. And here I'm being uh, taking some uh, uh, Pointers from uh, Hatshin Chang, who's a professor at uh, Cambridge on uh, economics, and I think he's quite profound in some of his observations about uh, interconnections which can drive problems. So, as he says, in the run-up to the 2008 crisis, we couldn't make good decisions because things had become too complicated. There were too many connections, so our decisions were overwhelmed. In particular, there were so many financial innovations, and here I've been advocating innovations as good, but if we can't see the consequences, then we end up with problems. Even financial experts themselves, he said, did not fully understand these consequences. They weren't fools, but the top decision makers of these firms did not grasp much of what their businesses were doing, and the regulatory authorities couldn't figure out what was going on either. And since that time, we've seen a flood of confessions from people such as... Alan Greenspan. Alan Greenspan, who confessed that he made a mistake in presuming that the self-interest of organizations, such as banks, was such that they were best capable of protecting their own shareholders and the equity in their firms. This one here, Hank Paulson, Henry Paulson, the US Treasury Secretary, former head of Goldman Sachs. And those of us who have looked to the self-interest of lending institutions to protect shareholders' equities, myself especially, are in a state of shock disbelief. So lots of confidence, lots of clever people that overwhelmed in the end by the set of connections between these systems. 
And the technological progress can sometimes make these worse. Not only do they lead to greater <coughs> consumption and greater connectivity, raised expectations, but they can lead, because of that greater consumption, to resource shortages, environmental damage, greater uncertainty. So this engine of technological progress has the potential to destabilize some of the systems which are delicately poised just now. And I'm going to run through five examples in the next ten minutes or so. And my first example, I'll go back to the, this Great War, uh, which uh, Norman Angel was convinced would never happen, but then in the next four years, 17 million people were killed. The very interesting thing happened at the end of that war, of course. Something that in some ways dwarfed the First World War in terms of its horrors. Spanish flu broke out in 1918, as the world had been weakened and suffered because of the war. Any ideas on how many people were killed due to this outbreak of influenza? 50 million. Hmm? 50 million. 50 million. Uh, if you look at Wikipedia, some people argue there might even be as many as 100 million. So although I grew up at school hearing many, many stories about the terrible tragedies of the First World War, we didn't hear so much stories about the tragedies of the Spanish flu, even though ultimately raw numbers, that was much more horrific. In one way, it was deliberately unreported at the time in the media. The media were just uh, shell-shocked and didn't say much about it. But it could be more accurately described as perhaps the greatest medical holocaust in history. It killed more people in 24 weeks than AIDS has killed in 24 years. Killed more people in a year than the Black Death killed in a century. So, could this happen again? And if we look at uh, the causes of this global pandemic, increased travel, increased interconnectivity, the fact that society had been weakened by the ravages of war, well, it almost did happen again, didn't it, quite recently. There's a swine flu outbreak in 2009, 2012. And people, hard to know exactly how many died. Some people say 18,000, some people say 300,000. So a lot short, lot short, thankfully, than the 50 million people. But in just three months, this has spread over 74 different countries. So why wasn't this uh, more terrible, its outcome? Almost just by luck. This was a less lethal uh, strain. It only killed roughly one, well, it's a very low number of people, but not 3%. Whereas in the 1918 variant, maybe 1 in 40 people who were afflicted by the disease died. So in a sense, we might have been lucky just to get away. So one of the crises I certainly think we should fear is the risk of new diseases going viral. And it's more likely to happen now perhaps in the past simply because, uh, one thing we've been overusing in antibiotics, new diseases can evolve rapidly. Secondly, there is some societal irrationality, uh, avoidance of vaccinations or weak information sharing. So the country which was nurturing this H1N1 uh, wasn't particularly keen to tell the rest of the world about it for a while. You can understand why. And we have the risks of people creating new pathogens, accidentally or intentionally. So I think, I don't know what proportion of probability put on this, but maybe 5% likely, maybe one chance in 20 will be a really horrific new outbreak of disease, brought on and exacerbated by our technology in the next 10 years or so. Let's play with this theme of viruses and contagions. <clears throat> this is probably more likely to happen the risk of a, another collapse in the financial system. I was at a meeting at the well, RSA in London last night for a bunch of expert commentators, all basically saying we've learned so little from the last financial crash. You know, we're still uh, sort of lucky to be getting, getting on by. 
So it's financial innovation with unintended side effects. Nobody plans for these side effects, but nobody has the ability to see all the connections. Just as in the last financial crash, people hadn't realized the, or the extent to which the shadow economy was there. So there are all kinds of things that can exacerbate this. We seem to be sort of surviving the euro crisis. Greece's uh, decline hasn't pulled down the rest of the eurozone yet, but there's a lot of risks there, especially when there are people who are observing the rapidly changing winners and losers, the highly volatile situation, and especially when it might be compounded by declining availability in some resources, whether it's oil or clean water or real mineral, leads people to venture and can have bad side effects in terms of the financial system. But all that thought, I want to go further with this. I want to look at the risks of climate change going viral. This is a chart I first put together a year ago, and it seems that some of it might be bearing <coughs> truer, coming true sooner than I thought. Uh, again, it's uh, unintended side effects of what humans are doing. There are connections that we don't fully understand and how this vast climate system works. People argue there are a deal about how it works. But the risks are, again, of these virtual cycles working to bad outcomes. And if you look at some of these virtual cycles, first of all, there's a cycle that as there's less ice on the planet, the world heats up, there's less ice at the poles. As there's less ice, guess what? the incoming light gets reflected back to space less often. It goes more into the water and heats up even more. This is one example of the positive feedback look. look. And it's one reason why the climate change in the Arctic is faster than anywhere else in the world currently. There's a more serious risk, which is that there's lots of uh, greenhouse gases captured uh, millennia ago, and uh, maybe longer ago, in uh, ice, in the tundra, in Siberia and so on. But as the temperature increases, and some of this permafrost melts, and it can uh, release vast amounts of trapped greenhouse gases, heating up the earth even more, which causes more ice to melt, and even more greenhouse gases to be. And this isn't just a theoretical consideration, or these may not be an entirely theoretical consideration. People have looked in the past at climate change. Some people think that the largest extinction event ever took place in the 250 million years ago, the Permian extinction, might have been triggered by a similar eruption in uh, trapped greenhouse gases which caused a rapid climate change and caused 96% of all marine species to become extinct in a short period of time, 250 million years ago. So could this happen in the next 10 years or so? It's hard to tell, but we can certainly see the risks that as parts of the earth are heating up, then climate is working differently. So large parts of California have been in a drought until very recently. Other parts of the continental United States have been in extreme colds. And of course, we've had our own problems here in this very city and nearby. Is that exacerbated by the global warming caused by CO2 and others? We don't know. But, you know, looking at the other kind of potential connections in there, we've got to be careful. Crisis number four, risk of human extremism going viral. I think you've had, uh, speaking here in the past, somebody called Eliezer Yudkowsky. And Eliezer coined this phrase, and can capture on the internet, the Moore's Law of Mad Scientists. You heard of this, Moore's Law of Mad Scientists? He says that every year, or every 18 months, let's use Moore's figure, every 18 months, the minimal IQ required to destroy the world drops by one point. Or maybe more than one point. Why? Because it's easier for people to get a hold of weapons of mass destruction. It's easier for people to download. Now you can download from the internet uh, the instructions to 3D print uh, a gun. 
maybe in the future be able to download something from the internet and with an IQ of, I don't know, 140, you might be able to build a nuclear weapon. Probably can't do it yet, but every so often it gets worse. And there are variants of this, the minimum IQ drops that is required to wipe out a city, poison the water table, paralyze the whole internet. I think this is a serious threat. Um, with it much of modern life, I don't know. Any of you use Meetup? Meetup.com? Mm -hmm. One of the futurists uses Meetup. And for most of the last week, nobody could get on to Meetup.com. Why? Because somebody was doing a the, the distributed denial of service attack onto it. They asked the founders of Meetup, could you pay some money and we want and we want to bring down your site? And they said, no way, we're not talking to you. And so the site went down for the best part of a week. Uh, that's just a meetup, but there are aspects of the internet which um, uh, could be brought down uh, more seriously, either by intention or by unintention. And to lead back to the first of the crisis, there's the risk of people unleashing a devastating plague. Why would people do this? Sometimes people are just angry, sometimes they're irrational, sometimes people are grasping after financial benefit and they don't realize the full consequences. So we can talk about is it really credible that people will do these extreme things. I think there are more people angered by the growing societal inequality, technological unemployment. There's a lot of very angry people on the internet. It makes me despair sometimes. I print some on the internet. I think it's very reasonable. We get people saying really vicious and nasty things. There are lots of angry people there. There are lots of angry people in the Islamic world in particular, which I won't bother going through all of it, but I think there are lots of people there whose ideology, whose uh, philosophy teaches them that actually it uh, could make sense to precipitate an Armageddon. And there are some fundamentalist Christians who also look forward to an Armageddon, but I don't think they're actually trying to make it happen. Some of the Muslims are more in a small minority, thankfully, are still interested in uh, precipitating great acts of destruction. So I think we should fear that. And finally, I think we should fear other consequences of new technology going wrong. Uh, after all, new software typically has unexpected bugs. Imagine when new software is rolled out and the whole financial trading system could be thrown into jeopardy because of connections people didn't understand. Uh, nanotech on the whole seems to be very promising, but if we're not careful, there might be some uh, unexpected connection. And that's why people are afraid of GM, not because it's all rational, but they're just afraid, you know, that somehow there might be some uh, consequence that hasn't been fully worked out. And then this is an example I first said once, once at a conference in Oxford. The first atomic bomb might set the whole atmosphere on fire. That was worked out carefully. People thought, no, 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 it won't happen. And they, they were all confident that when the first atomic bomb went off, the atmosphere wouldn't go on fire. That was correct. But they didn't calculate so quickly, so correctly for the first hydrogen bomb. So the first hydrogen bomb, and the first of March 1954 at the Bikini Apple, they calculated uh, the Watts calculations would be between four and six megatons. Do you know what actually did happen in that case? Uh, it actually exploded 15. 15 megatons, two and a half times the expected maximum. There was uh, essentially, we have to say, these guys were extremely bright, they hadn't foreseen all the chain reactions. And they hadn't realized that, uh, that this contains more than one isotope of lithium. They had thought lithium-7 would be inert, it wouldn't react, it did react and led to this doubling, uh, more than doubling of the outcome. Uh, and people died as a result. At least one uh, Japanese fisherman who was uh, nearby. Uh, so he's the first uh, victim of uh, a, new, uh, a hydrogen bomb. Uh, lots of compensation was paid in due course. So could some calculations go wrong again in the same way? 
Yeah, potentially. So that's my kind of summary of some of the things we need to fear in the next uh, 10 years. I don't know how you could add these up, the probabilities of something going serious or wrong in one of these. Perhaps someone in the order of 50% chance, if we're not careful, that we could be deeply, deeply, deeply regretting one of these things going badly by, by 2025, I would say. People think about it, but they're not quite sure what to do about lots of this, and so we, we talk about some of these a lot, but not much happens. But I think we need to look at it even more and more widely, and I know you do that here in this uh, box set, and I think uh, we should get more and more people looking at it hard. Well, so let's pause for a minute here too, before I get on to the final part of the presentation. Is that kind of crisis you would pick up, that you would worry about? I don't know. Anders, you spend a lot of your time on exactly this topic, so I apologize for making you sit through, sit through this material. No, no, this is fine. Uh, I, just, uh, I was just checking. Was actually called the Castle Bravo test at the, at the beginning after all? I was uh, kind of confused by that. And, uh, yes, indeed. And it's the most energetic mistake so far in human history. Yes. So you're saying that I got the, figure, the details right? Yeah, you got it right. Uh, the, the, there is a quibble about whether it was the first hydrogen bomb or not. It was the first one with a solid fuel, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who cares? Right. Yeah. But, but I think you've got the, a, a good example list of uh, stuff uh, to be concerned about. It, it's also worth noticing that you can get small versions of it. It's kind of a distribution. Uh, yeah, a global pandemic can be really bad. You can also have a not so horrifying uh, pandemic. That can still be bad. Sometimes if it's a wake-up call, it might actually have a good long-term yes. effect, but it's not terribly fun if you're the victim of it. And this goes, of course, for most of other things too. And sometimes you even have a mild instance of something that causes bad effects, like 9-11. That didn't inoculate us against terrorism. Uh, it made us, in a sense, more vulnerable because we got a kind of terrorism obsession that led to a lot of very bad decisions. So part of that is a theme of the, the upside of down, mm -hmm. as uh, Thomas Homer Dixon, the political scientist, talks about. That uh, when something down bad happens, then it will force us, in principle, to reevaluate our priorities and become more serious about these topics. He's convinced. He, he's in Canada, I believe, uh, in uh, Toronto. He writes a lot about interesting things. Some of the same interconnectivity that I've been talking about, Thomas Homer Dixon. And he seems to be convinced that we're not going to cool out of these crises by ourselves until something goes badly wrong first. And like you, he's hoping it's going to go badly wrong in a manageable way rather than a, a worldwide impact. He's hoping that will make people wake up to get too preoccupied by other things in the meantime. I would summarize this by saying this crisis to come down to complexity, connectivity, something called systemic risk. I'm certainly overconfident that we think we know more about these uh, to topics than we do. Yeah, so to be clear, are these the uh, five most important crises to worry about that may happen before 2025? Or are these the most five important crises to worry about that may ever happen? I think these are five important representative examples. I don't claim these are the, the most important, necessarily. <laughs> I think uh, the I'm not just picking 2025 here. I would say in the, in the next half half century, say up to, up to the middle of, up to the middle of the century, say I would say these are all things that we should be seriously worried about. 
uh, if it's climate change, sometimes people say, oh, we need to worry about climate, the, by the end of the century, the sea will have risen. I don't think that's, I, I don't worry about that at all, because I'm quite confident that if it's that far out in the future, we will have technology to fix it by then. What I do worry about is the climate will go badly wrong in the short term, by some of the, uh, before we've got the technology in place to fix it properly. So these are things, 2025 to 2030 or so, that we should worry about, but they're not necessarily all that we should worry about, and I will make the case that we should uh, support the likes of FHI, Future Humanity Institute, in doing a more systematic study. Yes? Has anyone looked into <coughs> the way that one of those crises occurring might increase the probability yes. of another crisis yes. occurring, for example, uh, financial system collapse, increasing the probability of terrorism? Absolutely. <laughs> um, again, Tom's home addiction, that's, that's his argument as well. He said if there's only one of these problems, we'd probably be able to fix it. If we could concentrate on it. But uh, as I go going back to the very beginning of my talk, I put this on purpose, this Kindle thing, as it was, it happened because of the convergence of technologies. The big problem for us is not the convergence of technologies, but the convergence of risks. And uh, you might be able to cope with one, but not the fact that it spills out and causes other things to go on as well. There's also the danger of overreaction worries me quite a lot. Yes. Arguably the American reaction mm. to the Twin Towers yes. was far more dangerous and widespread than the triggering event. Yes. You, I think Kowski talks about how maybe somebody should make an AI to make sure that nobody can ever make an AI. That will be its one job. The, the, that kind of thing, people with good intentions that frightens could do just as much harm, I think. I suppose it keeps coming back to how do we make things more rational and you keep talking about how we need to have the public discourse, but yes. how do we make, how, how do we use either Wolfram, Alpha, IBM, Watson, I, I, I don't know, to, to give, uh, um, you know, just-in-time answers to people's queries. I, I don't know how you do that because as things move faster, reactionary approaches, uh, these triggered reactionary approaches that yeah. That Paul is talking about can cause more damage. Then. So, what should ideally happen is that when something badly goes wrong, people say, Oh, we, something, we need to do something, but they won't just do the first thing comes into their head. They'll, they, they'll go to FHR or some other place and say, Have you thought about this? What would what, 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 what <laughs> 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 you advise? Well, that's not, well, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose the whole point of IBM Watson or, or Wolfram is to, um, is to compress um, the, the dimensionality of a problem. Yeah. So that you compress a multi-dimensional problem and give like forty-two as the answer, like everything or something like. Uh, I, I don't. But Watson is also increasingly good at explaining why it comes to its conclusions. Yes. yes. Unlike in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, when the answer came up, but nobody had an idea where that answer came from. <laughs> so Watson, the thing's been added to it in the last two years is to be able to explain its reasoning yeah. in a very vivid way. And I have beta tested the, the medical application that Watson has, yeah. uh, that doctors use uh, when they're running around the floor, and it's actually pretty good. So, I mean, do you think that that would help? That would help, well, I mean, politicians, because you're going to talk, um, and, and, and having the app on, on, on the phone or just on your Google Glass or whatever, that when you are faced with a situation, you don't have a bundle of systematic reviews or meta-analysis in front of you, you just have the summary. You have just, yeah. yeah, absolutely. We need to be better at uh, getting a hold of the right thing. What's the phrase? If only we knew what we knew, right? <laughs> Society knows an awful lot of things, but uh, typically the, that knowledge is not in the right place at the right time. And so people will take decisions which other people in society knew in advance would be most likely not be the right answer. So it comes down to, let me skip on to the next slide, it comes down to 
being better at pooling out our knowledge, pooling out our knowledge collaboratively. Uh, skip this one. Let's get on to this one I'm trying to reach. And I'm hopeful that we'll be able to use some of the outputs of tech. Oops, wrong way. Excuse me. Hoping we'll be able to use some of the outputs of our technology to enhance our ability to do collaborative learning. Things like uh, various online tools, such as well, Wikipedia's here. It's, 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 it's kind of a baseline provision. Uh, various online educational resources like Khan Academy MOOCs. I see that I did Watson in here. Definitely belongs in this slide. Uh, I did less wrong in the other rationality sites of people like Eliezer Yudkowsky. Uh, I don't know if you've come across that. Uh, they, they also got a spin-off now to focus on teaching rationality. I forget what it's called. CIFAR. CIFAR. CIFAR, yeah. Now I would add that in there along with the Oxford Future Humanity Institute and similar. So I think that's going in the right direction. And we have to enhance that so that when uh, people come up with crises that need answers, they will be able to reliably get the information. And I think this is my own uh, kind of, uh, project for the, for the next 10, 20 years of my life, whatever. It is to pull together reliable information that uh, people will be able to read and understand and uh, consent to. Uh, so that's my challenge. But I think none of these tools so far is ideal. Uh, there's lots of irrationality in the world too, as you said. When there is a crisis, people often react in a way that is against the best <coughs> practice and they go jumping into things. And there are other forces at work. And I'm not going to have time to go through all of these in any means. I'll just quickly list kind of the kind of three roadblocks to this better collaboration. I think there's a roadblock in terms of our psychological limitations. We're just not very good sometimes getting on, especially in a crisis. I was in a meeting yesterday when people unexpectedly shouting at each other because we were coming close to a particular deadline and people I thought were normally reasonable and rational. They just lost the ability to collaborate in that meeting for, the, for that moment. So we've all got uh, limits in our psychology. Other people will point to limits in our economic systems, economic contradictions, the fact that there's so many vested interests in society, which um, go back to whether smoking is good for you or bad for you. And guess what? The smoking industry spent huge amounts of money convincing everybody that smoking wasn't so bad for you. And uh, the same people who were paid for by these smoking companies often now be receiving money, grant money, from the oil, oil companies to say, well, actually, climate change isn't such a worry after all. So there are lots of vested interests there, uh, but there are all kinds of other forces at work which uh, cause people not to be able to collaborate together. <coughs> I also think it comes down to disagreements and values. People have got fundamental values from different places, and that's what I try and look at as well. I think when it, you have to sort out and get a new set of values that make sense for the opportunities in the 21st century, rather than being tied to many of the limits from before. Uh, in terms of improving our psychology, of course, uh, part of it is being more rational, and part of it is trying to recognize things like you know, our diet affects our, our ability to be kind and so on. Uh, don't know if any, well, you must have seen this. Uh, Julian Savalescu here uh, collaborating with a uh, Swede. Ingmar Persson. Ingmar Persson wrote this uh, article saying, you know, yeah, we're facing this crisis, we're facing climate change, we're facing war. Guess what? We did not evolve to be able to cope with it. When we were on the African savannah, these were not the issues that we were being selectively uh, bred uh, by natural selection to be able to cope with. 
our current natural moral psychology is insufficient to meet these challenges. We react in ways which actually tend to make these problems worse rather than better. And, so here's a positive proposal there, rather than just things like education, rather than teaching people things like non-violent communication skills, why don't we actually change our biology? Why don't we change our psychology? By things like well, external devices, yes, or smart drugs, or electromagnetic stimulation, or genetic reprogramming and re-engineering. So I think this is an interesting suggestion. I don't think it's going to happen in time, however. I don't think we're going to be able to do this at all reliably in this time scales. So I'm interested in certainly improving the uh, psychology. I'm interested in as much information as possible as to how I can be more rational, how other people can be more rational and be more collaborative. But I think the bigger impact may be if we can change some of the way the economy is regulated. But I don't think we can talk about redesigning from scratch the way that some people do. But nor do I take the current economic situation as the best ever, no more than I take our current psychology as the best ever. I think as we understand more and as we apply technological insights, we can certainly modify both of these. But the thing which is more easily within our grasp, and this is my final comments, is to improving our set of values that we work with. So I'm arguing that if we have a clearer set of understanding, it's something we can all buy into that will help us to resist some of the other pressures which are causing us to focus on wrong things. And this is Humanity Plus. In my last slide, I'll briefly contrast what I consider the prevailing mainstream thinking, which I might call humanity constrained, with what I want more and more people to see the benefits for, to be able to champion humanity enhanced. Humanity constrained says, yeah, you know, things are scarce. That's a sort of fact of life. Of course, we have to use things like the profit motive to guide how people operate and guide how people uh, behave. Humanity enhances, look, frankly, technology is within our grasp to give ample energy for the whole world. We can capture the energy from the sun, which is more than enough to meet all our energy needs. We can use nanotechnology and other things to create sufficient food, of sufficient variety to give people, for most things, enough that we can easily share around without us being so divisive. This Viewpoint tends to say, oh, well, the present day is so risky and so difficult, if only we could go back to the golden age of some previous simple life. Uh, and there's a fear of progress, with some reason, because uh, progress can stir things up and do wrong. But the humanity plus view, in my view, says actually we are on the point of reaching a better life, a better age than we've ever achieved. We should be wisely embracing progress to make that happen. Humanity Minus also says, right, we should not be playing God. You know, God is, uh, should be playing God. We should not be doing these things that require God-like powers. Humanity Plus says, well, look, if we don't play God in a positive way, other people will be doing similar things in, uh, for bad motivations and bad purposes. We should be using these new near-divine powers wisely. Rather than just aiming to be well and expecting in the end personal decay, Technology has the right, the potential to make us better than well and personal vitality. In the end, I see this as a, a defeatist approach. Eventually, we're going to die and decay. Everything that we care for will uh, rot away from us. This is a much more inspirational approach. I believe that as more people can see this as credible, as more people can see the enhancements possible to our health, people can see the enhancements in our thinking, and enhanced ways of operating together, more and more people will say, actually, this is a better way to live, and uh, more money will be spent in researching the issues that have been outlined here and that you're talking about in your meetings here generally.
a lot more than I could say, but I invite you instead to at least some of you to make your way to London in a couple of weekends' time when we've got 18 speakers who, in their own ways, will be giving snapshots into some of the same material that I've been covering here. This is a conference co-hosted by myself and London Futurists and various people from the Humanity Plus organisation, including the International Chairperson of Humanity Plus, Natasha Vitamore, uh, who will be jointly uh, chairing this with me. So, I think it's time to wrap up. Uh, I think the future is incredibly important. I don't think it's getting anything like the attention it needs because it's a very hard subject and it's up to us to clarify uh, some of these key lines and to help our leaders, our politicians, our business leaders and other leaders to see more clearly what the positive potential and the negative potential is and to help them to be ready to navigate through these uh, opportunities and crises in the next 10 years. Thanks for giving me your time on a Friday evening, and I hope that's given you at least one new thing each to think about, even though you knew some of it already. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for a wonderful talk. Now I assume we uh, let's have some discussion. <laughs> well, you have supervisions you need to prepare, or whatever else the students do nowadays. Don't you have lessons on Saturday mornings here in Oxford? <laughs> I won't be terribly upset if one or two of you have to leave, but I'm more than happy to stay and talk uh, talk for a while uh, on questions arising from this. Oh yeah, and there's some Jaffa cakes and stuff. Jaffa cakes? It's not going to make us healthier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not yeah, good idea. Oh, that's what's wrong. So, so there is an interesting about uh, rapid feedback here, that idea about uh, what's on the uh, app. Uh, yeah. Suppose it actually works, it actually always gives sensible advice. I wonder how many people actually follow it. Yeah. yeah, so your phone would say to you, do this, and you wouldn't. It's like your, your, a trusted friend, it could yeah. be your, 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 part, your life partner or whatever. We don't always act on the advice that he or she gives us. <laughs> but, what this device should be in due course, you'll understand our psychology so well, it'll be like a really good friend who's able to talk to us in a way that we would say, yeah, I guess you're right, you know. Rather than, uh, rather than raising our hackles, rather than making us say, oh, you always criticize me for X, Y, Z, you know. So, <laughs> so it, it would be a combination between, uh, between uh, IBM Watson, Wolfram Alpha, Google Now, and Samantha's hair. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, so, 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 so it would include Nudge, yeah. along with a meta-analysis yeah. review, along with... Uh, quantified analysis of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it would have all. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is nudging if it's actually not very good in its advice. If it's perfect in its advice, which I'm allowed to use uh, as I mean, the philosophy department can kind of assume that, mm -hmm. then everything's fine. If you have something that's actually not always right, but it's very good at nudging you, then you have a, a scary situation. Eat, eat <laughs> the cake. My name is Ozzy. Sorry. No, no, no. So I, I work at 80,000 hours, with, so I've been seeing the effective altruist movement. Are you, are you familiar with the effective altruist? I have a bit, but say, say a bit more about it. Okay, so um, it kind of talks about how to optimize the good that you do yes. with your life. Um, in a few specific ways, it has been related a lot to utilitarianism, yes. which um, Eliezer and a few other people are utilitarians. I've been watching um, transhumanism for a while now and being kind of part of it. I'm just curious what conversations are happening within Humanity Plus and within the transhumanists right now 
um, that you're familiar with on you know, utilitarianism, on moral philosophy, to decide how to guide the future going ahead? So it's not something we discussed at the H plus board, I have to say. The H plus board, the humanity plus board, which I sit on uh, the last few months have been discussing more organizational issues than that. There are individual philosophers, of course, like David Pearson, you've had here, who's a particular brand of the negative utilitarian. I'm not sure what it's Well, he's a negative utilitarian, but. If he's uh, doing positive stuff, also counts. But first, we better stop the pain. It's still pretty utilitarian. Yeah. Yes. So, the kind of philosophy I'm talking about, and I think where, where I would put more effort, is uh, on, on the slide that I was trying to say, making the case that we should be ready to play like God, rather than abandoning it. Uh, making the case also, uh, I skipped some slides, making the case that uh, we should be seeking to make changes in a reversible way where possible. And sometimes people say there's a philosophical principle called the precautionary principle that means you shouldn't do things if there's any risk of them going wrong. And that seems to be uh, just impossible, but uh, if you can do things in a way that they're more likely to be reversible, so when you can see things are you can see bad effects and then you might be undo. That's the kind of philosophical discussion I'm more and more in tune with. Uh, I haven't had a discussion as to whether we should be deontologists or uh, consequentialists on Humanity Plus. Maybe we, I think the view is we are a broad church, right? So we're not going to dictate a matter like that until such time as it becomes clear that one one way is better than the other. My personal view, in terms of where I get my morality from, I quite like... Uh, uh, Sam Harris, are you familiar with Sam Harris? Mm -hmm. Sam Harris has said, look, actually, many of the questions of ethics will come down to questions about science. Uh, because there are many of the questions of ethics about what enables human flourishing, and uh, as we understand more about human flourishing, we'll be able to say more categorically, this kind of behavior is going to destroy human flourishing, this kind of behavior is more like the element of human flourishing. So I, I presume there's a utilitarian thing written into that. But I mean, that's the book or parchment that I read that, uh, in the last few years, which I uh, thought was the most interesting things to say. He compares ethics to cooking in some ways, you know. Uh, diet, you know. Yeah, diet. So how do you know what the best diet is? Well, in the end, uh, there is science behind it too. There isn't necessarily just one best diet. There can be many best, but you can say that some diets are more likely than others to help you to be physically fit. So many of the things that ethics and uh, morality debate, in there we'll be able to look at science and say, right, here's the reason why this is a better choice than others. So that's a long answer, I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm, I'm used to a much answer. longer answer, so don't worry about <laughs> it. Okay. Um, what is the future of the third world? The future of the third world should be to uh, have the same kind of quality of life as the first world. So I don't see why not, you know? So there's some countries that have made very significant leaps forward in the last uh, 50 years or so. So it doesn't mean everybody will be the same. I'm quite happy to have, I, I think there should be plenty of variety in culture. Uh, people should be able to, but in terms of quality of life, there should be no reason for the third world to be uh, held back. But what other answer should, should I give? Oh, no, I, I mean, that was, that was, I mean, I think we would all agree, but it should be. But I, I guess my question is... How did we get more? Yeah, because it seems like in a lot of ways that there are certain places that are lagging, you know, increasingly lagging behind the rest of the world. So there's two angles to this. Uh, there's the angle that things are becoming more unequal, 
which is surprising, but there is evidence that there is greater inequality in some ways. This is this, even in South America, there are more. There's a greater spread of salaries. The the, me, the mean income is increasing, but the median income is going down. So that's a sign of increasing inequality. So we didn't get around to that discussion. So that I think there needs to be more things done forcibly redistribute some of that income, which means putting things, places, things in place to prevent the accumulation of income in just a small number of hands. Is the same thing happening on the worldwide level? I'm not sure. Uh, but there are plenty of examples of countries that have gone forwards in leaps and bounds, even in Africa. So uh, Ethiopia doesn't sound like a great place. But as far as I understand, there's not a thriving tech community in Addis Ababa. There might even be a Humanity Plus conference in uh, Addis Ababa in, in the course of the next 12 months. And so there's an example of our countries which uh, for a long time looked like they're irretrievably stuck in Africa, as described as kind of the basket case, there's no hope. But there are some countries in Africa where things are coming along uh, significantly, finally. Uh, there's a book, uh, The Wealth of Nations, by a couple of uh, economists that I'm not going to be able to remember the names of. Adam Smith. No, maybe it's not called the Nations. Then yeah. the book of the names have a very similar sounding name. A very similar sounding name. Why nations fail? Mm-hmm. Why nations fail? Yep. Yes. It's a good one. Thank you. Mm-hmm. This is the, the the room is smarter than any one of us, right? <laughs> this is the collective wisdom of us. So uh, and so they talk a lot about why some countries get left behind, and it's down to whether the institutions in the country. See if I get this right. Whether yep. the institutions. Uh, share out things or whether they support consolidation of wealth in just a small small place. So there's some fantastic uh, analogies, comparisons rather, looking across the border and uh, between Mexico and uh, the United States, very similar districts but with very different uh, economic systems and very different levels of wealth. So I think there's a lot of very good practical advice in that too. It's another book I've read in the last few years which has a lot to say on that practical issue of helping nations to succeed. Uh, what are some of the projects that um, Humanity Plus or London Futurists are working on? Okay. So Humanity Plus is to do with education as well. So one thing they have supported for a while is the Humanity Plus magazine, or H Plus magazine. Now there are many other online uh, journals, but I think Peter Rothman, who runs this on behalf of Humanity Plus, has done a fine job of pulling information together. And what the board has uh, approved uh, is uh, setting up an H Plus press, which is going to help some of the best material to be more easily published and distributed. So in the last few weeks, Ben Gutzel, who is the personal Humanity Plus board, he's the vice chair, uh, he's a fantastically productive individual, he's running AI research, uh, but he also has been overseeing the creation of a couple of books in which uh, key articles from H Plus magazine from the last few years are selected and published. So Humanity Plus is about education. And that's what I see London Futurist having to do as well. So I talk about London Futurist Academy. I mean, I'm not quite sure how it's going to work out. I'd like to tie it together with the H Plus University, that's something we're talking about, which will allow uh, a place where people can come and find reliable, uh, trustworthy information, free from hype, free from sensationalism, free from commercial pressures, which set out some of the things I've been talking about, but set them out in a little bit more careful manner and make it very accessible and very easy so that more and more people can have that access to this kind of futurist one-on-one, transhumanism one-on-one. There are futurists, but typically they don't take sufficiently serious, in my view, some of the radical possibilities that I've been talking about. So you get two kinds of futurists. You get the radical ones who are often not very 
careful and they're a bit too sensationalist, or you get the ones who are a bit more careful, but they don't take the radical scenarios so seriously. I want to do both. I want to have a very serious analysis of the radical scenarios. So that's my main project with London Futurists. Um, do you work with um, working uh, regarding ethical issues with uh, military and technological advancement from that perspective? Not personally, but uh, well, there are huge issues there in yeah. terms of what, what drones can do and uh, what autonomy is. So I was pleased to see that when uh, Google acquired DeepMind to get access to some of their deep learning, the founding team of DeepMind insisted that Google set up an ethics board to, to review how some of this material would be used. So that's a step in the right direction. Yes? Uh, I was wondering if you have heard about this idea of these startup cities or just the idea of uh, avoiding the problem of trying to implement a new technology and it going wrong and not being able to come back because you've implemented like globally or something. Yes. But instead of doing that, just setting up like a local community yes. in which you just implement it there and like they're free from maybe like normal laws yes. or something. So this is slightly tied up with my reversibility principle that I briefly touched on earlier. You make changes in a way that isn't going to Run, run over the whole world if it goes wrong. So you do it in a way that you can backtrack. And so doing it in a, in a one locale makes sense. So I think uh, some of the stuff with GMO, maybe to get more evidence that it works, in a, in a sense that's happened because it's done in America, isn't it? In Australia. And Australia. Yes. So, so the evidence is there, yeah. So applying that same principle. And then the second half that you do is, to, is then to finally to get a rational discussion on it rather than a currently irrational discussion. But the, the first part of it has been the experiment in a local form in which has got some uh, actual uh, concrete data as a result. So I like that idea. Yeah? So given what we've, what we've talked about today, what would you say are the, are the main things that, that the government should be throwing money at in terms of science development? in order to realize some of the yeah. aspirations that you've expressed today. Okay. Well, the government can't invest in everything. It has to make some decisions. I think there are some uh, uh, areas in this country that deserve a, a prioritized investment from the government. I think there's a, a lot of stuff in stem cells in this country. There's a lot of uh, expertise in some of, the, in some of the universities, particularly in London. Uh, there's a debate inside the government how much money should they invest in stem cells. I think they should be investing very, very heavily indeed in it. Uh, nanotechnology, of course, we have, we have the world leader of nano, the original founder of nanotechnology here in the city, you know, and they're very fine teams here, here in Oxford. So I would uh, steer some of that government funding in that direction too. Now, some people say the government shouldn't be trying to pick winners in such a way, this kind of uh, an approach. I think that actually the evidence shows that many of the long, uh, uh, the long investments in technology that made Silicon Valley possible, that only happened because of sustained uh, patient funding from the governments. Uh, there's a book uh, called The Entrepreneurial State by Marie Mariana Mazzucato, which I, I think is a, yeah, another book I, want to, I recommend people to read. She's a professor of innovation at the Sussex University, where they do a lot on technology entrepreneurship and technology innovation. She makes the case that almost everything that's in the Apple iPhone uh, uh, benefited from long-term funding from the government. Even Siri was funded by uh, the US government for a while, before it became Siri, of course. The GPS systems, the capacitive screens, uh, and so forth. So the argument is that uh, 
government should be doing uh, targeted long-term funding as well. Oh, and of course, into rejuvenation technology, since we've got so much happening here too in that field. So I would very much, uh, uh, if I could control government postings, I would certainly uh, encourage them to spend on that. However, to be frank, of course, if we are spending more money, we have to cut back on spending elsewhere. And uh, yeah. I don't know quite what, what I would pick to do that. But I would just say these things are long-term priorities and they deserve, they really deserve that uh, share of the, the public public uh, finances. And why will politicians reach that view? In part, if more of the populace is asking for it as well. What are your thoughts on space mining? Pardon? Space mining. S space? Mining. What about space mining? People like <coughs> Diamandis who's building a business to go to the asteroids yeah. and they mine. Yeah, maybe we could get some money from that too. Yeah, yeah we could invest in that thing. There was a paper recently that was a bit pessimistic about it because the number of really optimal uh, near-Earth asteroids were relatively low. But it was an interestingly pessimistic paper because it pointed out these ones, if space money actually can be profitable, that just means there are fewer of them out. So the first one to get them, or get the really good ones, they're going to get more and much more. So they suggest that this might actually be much more of a gold rush uh, kind of thing. So the Amandis competitors uh, might want to get ahead of So this might be a reason for me to work even harder. Are you a competitor of the Amandis? Uh, you don't want to win with a screwdriver, especially not very close to rocket fuel. Uh, I'm just cheering on. <laughs> cheering on, yes. Are there any other questions? Yeah, but I think I'd like to get some food first. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, please give their time.